This is Kevin Finneran, the moderator of the upcoming online symposium on visual culture and evolution, which is being organized by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences and will take place April 5th to 14th, 2010. To help introduce some of the topics that will be discussed during the symposium, I've traveled to Chicago to speak with Eduardo Katz, one of the pioneers of bioart, which living organisms and biotechnology are incorporated into works of art. Katz is internationally recognized for his groundbreaking 1980s works, which used communications and computer technology to create what he called telepresence. In the 1990s, he expanded his reach by incorporating living organisms into what he dubbed bioart and eventually transgenic art. He received worldwide attention for his 2000 work in which he incorporated a gene for fluorescence into a rabbit. The rabbit, which glows green under a certain wavelength of light, has become an emblem of the age of biotechnology and a touchstone for a wide-ranging public discussion of the meaning of genetics for humanity. Here, Katz will also describe a couple of his more recent projects. In addition to being an imaginative and provocative artist, Katz is a thoughtful commentator on art and contemporary culture. In this discussion, he reflects on some of the historical intersections between evolutionary science and the visual arts, and provides insights to his own creative process and his thoughts on the connections between art and science. Katz makes it clear that although we might find some shared interests between art and science, we should never think of art as merely commentary on science. He emphasizes that art is an independent and essential sphere of human activity with its own rationale and purpose. It might incorporate tools and ideas from science. It might contribute insights to science, but it must always be understood and appreciated in its full aesthetic context. I am confident that you will find much to ponder and much the debate in Katz's thoughtful comments. Was there anything happening in the arts um, during the mid-19th century when Darwin was preparing his work, developing his ideas on evolution? Were there ideas already out there um, in the arts that were in some way thinking about evolution, thinking about some of the concepts that went into evolution, or that might even have um, spurred Darwin to think about um, what he was seeing in a different way. I'm not sure we can establish a, a direct connection between uh, the two fields, but artists have always been drawn to multiple phenomena and have, I'm, I'm referring to visual phenomena, and artists have always sought to capture in their work the uncommon, the different. Uh, I might even say in certain cases the deviant. And um, we have examples going back to uh, Egyptian culture in which um, cattle with two tails are portrayed. That is, um, Mutant animals have uh, always been captured and in, in, in visual representation since the beginning of visual representation. And that interest is in some cultures coupled with the fact that these animals 
the awareness that these cultures had that these animals were rare, unique events. And in many cases, these animals acquired totemic qualities. So much so that, for example, in Native American uh, cultures, uh, albino animals are considered sacred. Uh, they're considered sacred, you could say, that there is perhaps an unspoken understanding that unless, if they're sacred, they're protected, because if they're not protected by humans, they're going to be easily hunted down by, by other animals. So there could be uh, an intuitive uh, motivation beyond this uh, sacred status that they acquired. But at the same time, they are the object of um, specialized attention, that is to say that even beyond the paranormal or, or, or mythological or spiritual uh, status that these animals acquire in these cultures, there is also a fascination with them on the, the most mundane, ordinary biological sense. So, and of course, this, this has been also the object of visual representation. So, uh, that pervades the entire history of visual culture, whether one calls it art or not. And that interest for the non-human progressively made its way into the uh, human canon. Because you have to understand that for a very long time, the only subject that was allowed in art was religious subjects. There are exceptions, of course, but um, and you take, for example, Bosch, and then you find representation of religious subjects coupled with a whole plethora of alternative life forms, demonic, hybrids of human and unhuman, chimeras, and so on and so forth. So this representation of the non-standard, be it uh, a literal attempt to capture an unusual biological event or the result of imagination in response to very specific social conditions, say in the Middle Ages. Were, were they trying to draw connections um, between the human and uh, the non-human? Because certainly you know, one of the ideas in Darwin that became most controversial is that in fact these are our cousins. Um, whereas for a long, you know, there's a sort of religious tradition that puts them you know, in a completely different category from human beings, not part of a larger biological family. With these magical animals or special animals, was that, were they in some ways considered a, a bridge or somehow linked between what we think of as, as human and non-human? Well, it's actually a little more complex than that, the, the picture, uh, if you look at it as a whole. Because um, you find already in the Renaissance, an artist like Lavinia Fontana, one of the first female artists to, to really develop a, a career, she was among the first artists to represent um, human conditions that uh, deviate from, from normal, uh, what you call a healthy individual. She portrayed, she has this very famous portrait of the young woman who suffered from a condition that produced hair all over her body, including her face. That's a very well-known portrait. And um, 
And, and that interest coincides with a time when science doesn't, didn't exist the way we understand it today, but was in its initial steps. So that case, that girl was, was brought all over Europe to different courts because there was great interest for human mutation, which would later uh, be you know, manifested, well actually when the first colonizers came to North and South America and brought examples of natives to European courts, there have always been curiosity for other types of humans, right? And, and in a sense, it could be said that a girl like that was treated with more respect. That curiosity was, was, was of, of a more benevolent kind than we find today, uh, people suffering from conditions uh, being, being treated. Of course, in the period of slavery, that, that type of curiosity manifests itself in a morbid way. But uh, that's why I say it's a very complex situation. It's not a straight line of one kind of narrative. It's, it's really uh, a network model of multiple discourses uh, crisscrossing. But the fact is that from the point of view of visual culture and the visual arts, uh, you, you find, as I was saying, from, from uh, Egyptian times through Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, uh, and even later, with uh, Velasquez when he, um, when he uh, represents um, individuals that were found in the court uh, that were served as jesters or what, what later in time we called mental retardation or, or mental handicap or mental challenges you know were portrayed in his paintings and um, in, other, in other words he when, when he was done with assignments for the king and he had free time, he would be interested in different kinds of visual representation, including uh, the variety of humans of multiple conditions that surrounded uh, him and, and, and the king. So um, what I'm saying is that progressively the canon that uh, the, the, the canon of representation of humanity in its multiple forms uh, with, with its multiple mutants, uh, all of it progressively entered uh, visual discourse from Egyptian times into modernity. So, so Darwin, in the sense, if you look at the history of visual representation, Darwin is, is a blip in the red radar. It's not really a, a radical departure point in that sense. One of my you mentioned earlier that, that when Bosch we started seeing animals, humans, other types of beings all mixed together. Um, did, was that continued in other artists um, you know, up through, say, the 19th century? How were animals um, portrayed in art um, through that time? Were there others that that gave them more power, more presence in the, in the painting, okay. especially in relation to, to human beings in the painting. What, what you have is a very curious phenomenon that is, while the non-human animal had constant presence in art through the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, all of a sudden, animality is taboo. 
because animality is the other of modernity. And we have suddenly the horseless carriage. So the horse is the past. The horseless carriage is the future. So a movement like futurism embraces the car as emblematic of transformations that the 20th century will undergo. Um, the airplane is, is, is the steel bird. Right? And all of a sudden, you have a situation that is, was unheard of before, just a few years, years before. You find yourself uh, in a car, in other words, you as a, as a subject, you are in motion yourself. And the landscape is in motion because the horizon line of the train is passing by. Mm -hmm. Vertically, the sky is in motion because airplanes are moving about. And, and in this space between all these things in motion, you have information through the telegraph coming through as well. So space and time are collapsed. And in a world like that, uh, the animal, that is, the non-human animal, is emblematic of, of an old era. And as a sign of modernity, then, it becomes taboo. You know, I can, I can see that with animals that we're accustomed to in Western culture. There's also the sort of exotic animals. And one of the ones, when, with Darwin in particular, the ones we're most related to are the, the apes and, and that whole family. Have they made appearances at this time in art um, for any of the people, you know, people who look outside the Western culture for representation? You mean what period we're talking about now? This is, well, in, during this transition period from, say, late 19th into early 20th centuries, where we're, we're pushing aside the kind of um, utilitarian animals that we, that we used with the ones, you know, the, you know, like the horse-drawn carriage. Well, in this period, you know, every... Our history sometimes tries to portray a period as being dominated by or being exclusively represented by a certain approach. But the reality is that every period um, experiences multiple approaches in, in, in art. So late 19th century, for example, you have on the one hand Impressionism and uh, occasionally you have uh, an animal, a non-human animal appears uh, in an Impressionist painting. But this is also a time, and uh, especially really late 19th century, we're talking about post-Impressionism with the likes of Seurat or Cézanne, and um, Seurat more than Cézanne would then be prone to uh, occasionally representing cats or, or, or animals. But interestingly, in symbolism, the animal acquires an emblematic nature. Not the, the cat is not there necessarily uh, as a feline mammal, you know, but but more as an emblem of something mysterious, something that eludes uh, graspable meaning, for example. Right. So, a creature of the night. So, the animal is treated this way, and in the beginning of futurism, interestingly. Uh, futurism in the very beginning is still influenced by Impressionism and Symbolism. So in the very first Futurist paintings, the very, very first Futurist paintings, the animal is still present. 
And those paintings don't really fully become futurists from until those non-human animals are expurgated from, from the paintings and the machine and speed and metal and light become the dominant theme. So the non-human animal is anathema to modernity in that sense. And is it your sense that the, the futurists in particular were, I mean, they were consciously commenting on technology. I mean, thinking about what was changing the world. Um, when we think about you know, a science like evolution, I mean, a, a theory that underlies some of the ways we think about the world. Um, were there artists during this period, you know, just after Darwin, um, consciously thinking that this was an idea they needed to respond to? I mean, certainly it changed in ideas you know, that were f generally pervading the culture, but were there artists um, that you're aware of who directly thought, um, I've got to say something about Darwin. I want to comment on this. Like I said, in, in, this, in such a direct way, I am not aware of it. I don't think that uh, culture works uh, with that kind of dynamics. I'm sure there were, for example, cartoonists that would have made drawings and, and made fun at, uh, at that perception. And to me, cartoon is an art. But if we're talking about uh, painting and sculpture and, and a whole body of work in which uh, this issue become a dominant issue. Uh, in that sense, I, I would say no, I'm not aware of. What, what you have is that progressively greater awareness of recent developments, say in math, for example, uh, throughout the 19th century, or specific developments, say uh, the rise of microscopy, uh, those had more of a direct impact. For example, the idea of uh, four dimensions had an enormous impact uh, in, in the visual arts because artists such as Marcel Duchamp or Theo Vandersburg or Maholi Nash, uh, whose, um, whose retrospective is about to open here at Loyola Art Museum, those artists were very interested in, in, the, in the issue, the question of space-time relationships, because they are intrinsic to the arts. Space and time are absolutely what art is made of. And that had a, a, an impact that you can, you can clearly see. For example, you look, as Linda Henderson has done, you look at their sketchbooks and you find clippings from popular science magazines at the time. And the visual representations of, of space and time uh, with a hypercube, for example, would have a, a very direct, measurable, if that's the point of, you know, establishing such a direct connection, impact on, uh, on their work. You look at a Kandinsky and, and you can see how directly influenced by microscopy uh, he was. But, but that is not to say much, I'm afraid, because that doesn't explain anything. That only means that these artists were very curious about these developments, because art is a, is a personal visual vocabulary and anybody can be interested and influenced in anything. And in the end, what makes Kandinsky's work is not that he was interested in, in visual, in, in the microscopy, but the fact that he developed a personal visual vocabulary drawing from different sources and, and build a, a, a pictorial world of his own. That's really what makes him the artist that he was. Um, wh what I'm saying is that 
while it may be interesting for an art historian to try to understand the multiple sources of an artist's work, what I'm really saying clearly is that these do not explain the artist, neither do they justify him. Um, you mentioned just in, in passing the sort of cartoons and popular images, and I know that there are, there are a couple. The Tree of Life is a you know an image that um, that gets is grounded in Darwinism and somehow in evolution and new branches and families breaking off. Um, there's also the popular cartoon that the New Yorker has it seems several times a year, which is some variation on the progress of humanity. You know, you see someone working on all fours, then becoming upright, and then gradually, um, usually in the New Yorker cartoons, descending again as some part of popular culture or something else brings us, <laughs> brings us backwards. Um, mm -hmm. um, I wonder if there are other illustrations. Those are ones that occur to me um, where they are consciously um, thinking about uh, a scientific idea. Um, are there others like that that you're aware of or things you see that... Um, in popular culture? Yeah. Well, the, to me, the, the, the funniest and saddest is that, yes, the, the, the primate rises into a, a, a biped, a hominid, and then progressively descends into a person working on the desk with a computer. <laughs> and that's the end of the line. Yeah, that, that's the one that uh, sticks to my mind. Yeah. I wonder, as, as we went forward through the 20th century and science and technology became an ever bigger piece, I think, of our, our cultural awareness. Um, do you think there's a point at which um, artists did start to think more directly about their work as somehow a commentary on science or an alternative view to the scientific view of, of seeing things? Well, Mahole Nash is among the first to point out that uh, the question of art is not one of reproduction but production. That is to say that um, an artist is not interested, by definition, in uh, simply replicating something that is already out there, but producing new ideas and relationships uh, by engaging with materials and processes in ways that don't necessarily obey the logic that led to the production of these materials and processes. In other words, the artist is free to pursue his or her vision in whatever manner he or she sees it. So, uh, in, in that sense, an artist, at least if, I, I can't really speak for the entire community of artists, I don't right. feel comfortable in doing that, I can only speak for myself, and I don't work with science, I work with art, I make art. Mm -hmm. And while you can take any painting and do a chemical analysis, a molecular analysis of that painting, uh, it's important to point out that you would be doing that yourself, not the artist. In other words, the painter is not a chemist. The painter doesn't work with chemistry. The painter paints and makes art. So likewise, I do not work with science or comment on science or engage with science uh, in, in any way. I simply make art and I use the media of my time, the 21st century, to, um, to make my work. And to summarize, science is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. But 
but there's also a case, and certainly this is true in your work, that science has given artists new tools. If not the ideas of evolution, our understanding of, of genetics and, and how organisms change over time has, is, is, a, is a power you know, that, that artists have begun incorporating into their own work. And so at some point, um, even if they weren't doing science or commenting on science, they were using some of the tools that science made available to them. Well, the question I would ask is that while this is partially true, it does not represent the totality of the process. Why is it that we always talk about what science has given artists and never the other way around? Right. So it's absolutely impossible to do science today without photography. And Daguerre was an artist. Mm -hmm. So artists have given science one of the most important tools and we never talk about this. Um, when we take photographs of outer space, we don't really take photographs. We sense data that gets translated with false colors. False colors were invented by the folk painters in the beginning of the 20th century. And, and this never gets acknowledged in any way uh, that uh, I see. So I think we have to understand that artists have given science a lot and the reverse is also true but since the reverse is always pointed out i take advantage of this opportunity to emphasize the side that rarely gets talked about so it's not artists are using science it's it's we we do have a larger cultural environment culture is made by many different participants Scientists contribute to shape culture in certain ways, artists contribute to shape culture in other ways, lawyers shape culture in different ways, writers shape culture in different ways, and the, the, the larger phenomenon that we call culture is in the end a network of contributions from different sources. I, I hesitate to privilege one over the other. No, actually I, I think that's, that's a, a terrific way of looking at this because um, certainly the images from the Hubble Space Telescope, which, you know, where they took data and someone decided how to present that. You know, they did, as you say, they added false color and so on. But those images are remarkably powerful and convey you know, a real understanding about the, the mystery and, and wonder at the origin of the universe. Um, they just captured it and they, I don't, it, none of the data about microseconds after the Big Bang and so on could have done that the way the idea that there is an event that we're viewing that took place billions of years ago and that we're seeing it and here's a visual representation of it. Something most scientists will recognize is that as they develop new ideas, often they have the data, it exists for a long time before they're able to put it in a new context. I mean, they keep trying to squeeze it into an old way of seeing things. You know, in a pre-evolutionary world, you could see a lot of the things that Darwin saw, but you would interpret them a different way. Whereas all of a sudden you take a view and say, well, maybe all of these things are connected. And it seems to me that artists can do that type of thing. They are alert to, to, to ideas, to, to concepts um, that are important, that allow all of us to see differently. So, um, and I wonder now, I mean, because we're in an age now, particularly in an age of genetics, where um, although we can you know, parse the, the genomic code, what does this mean about uh, where we're going to go, whether we should direct where we're going to go, and so on. So I'm 
I'm interested in some of the ideas you see that are coming out of the scientific community, out of the artistic community, that might be useful to scientists as they pursue this, to help them step back a little bit from their data and, uh, and see what, a, what is the meaning of the new powers that we're developing and the new, new ideas that are going to open up to us. Um, uh, forgive me, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to like, make this difficult, but, but the question has two challenges. One is that there isn't really such a thing as artistic community because art, in, our, our art is, is so diverse. You have you have you know painters making portraits. You have artists mm -hmm. creating new life that didn't exist in the planet you know before. In the case mm -hmm. of bioart, artists come in in so many different shapes and sizes and forms and interests and that it's really I find it basically impossible to allude to artists as as speaking mm -hmm. in unison in any way, you know, in any form or fashion, it, 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 really, it really is difficult. And then the other challenge of the question is that artists are in no way primarily uh, concerned with science or what scientists do or don't do. Or it, it, some, one artist here might be interested in that, another artist there might be interested in that. But uh, what scientists do or don't do is, is really not, not uh, uh, prominent issue for artists. Artists build their world, their repertoire, their universe, their, their way of seeing the world and, and this is what they are primarily interested in, in putting out there. Um, I, could only, I could only really speak uh, for myself. I can't, I can't really speak on behalf of anybody else. I would feel um, really uh, uncomfortable doing that. And um, in, in my case is that, um, likewise, I'm, I'm not primarily uh, preoccupied with what science does or, 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 or doesn't. Um, I certainly uh, appreciate the development of certain processes and materials that make the kind of art that I want to make possible. But in the past, when what I wanted to do wasn't available, you couldn't, you couldn't buy, you couldn't gain access to materials. That did not prevent me from making the work. I would then uh, create first the medium and then the work. With, uh, so, for example, when I, when I made digital holograms, even to this day you cannot buy a machine, a system. And you, you can't go into a store, you can't go online and say, I want to buy myself a, a digital holography system. It, it just doesn't exist like that. You have to make it yourself. And uh, when I wanted to create telepresence back in the 80s, um, even today you can't buy telepresence oh. kits to make whatever you want to make. It just doesn't exist. So I had to first create the material conditions. I had to actually create these, forge these links, build robots specifically with telecommunications capabilities and then link them to telecommunication systems so that I could make my telepresence works. So if there's something I want to make, but no industry or no scientific development has produced that, that's not going to stop me in that sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And in fact, I mean, in, you know, your answer is perfectly right. We don't want to think about 
the artistic community is if they get together and vote on what, would, what our ideas are going to be and so on. And it's very reductionist and, uh, and it's helpful to stay away from that. Um, so maybe focus a little bit. I mean, I think talking about your work, certainly, and, um, and also I know that, that you've paid a lot of attention to what some other people who are doing bio-art um, are up to, and many of them are, are colleagues, people you've, you've interacted with. So maybe we could talk a little bit more um, about them. Um, you know, what led you into doing things like the I think Genesis Project and then um, and later on um, Alba? So for the Genesis Project, what um, you know, if someone in the scientific community looks at that and says, "Aha!" and there's some guy who's trying to say, tell me something about what I'm doing in genetics, and but. That's not what you were trying to do, but what, what did draw you to that subject? And, um, and you might just describe very briefly um, how you went about it. I mean, what, what was the process like for you? Um, you know, that piece, Genesis, doesn't have a specific single subject. Um, it is a work of transgenic art, undoubtedly. And um, uh, I, created, I created the term bioart in 97 because I was coming out of a context in which I felt, which was digital art in the 90s, in which I felt that what was interesting and challenging and innovative and, and, and motivated me to be engaged um, I felt that that process was coming to an end. That is, the 20th century was about to close and the digital revolution, the impact of the digital revolution, I felt, was coming to a close. That is, not that we will never have faster, smaller devices, of course we will, but we had, in, in, during my lifetime, you know, I started, to, my first digital work was from 1982. My first online artwork is from 1985. So, my, in my lifetime, I had effectively gone from a period in which previous generations of artists who use computers or use them primarily as production tools into a context in which I could now I was a member of the first generation that could actually conceive of a work, produce the work, and allow the viewer to see the work in that environment. And, and that created an entire new cultural platform. Because before, the artist had to go into a lab, an isolated, isolated space, and produce something. Usually the output was on paper, rarely on film and then bring that out and show it, and that was the end of that. But I could actually conceive, produce, and exhibit in the same environment, and that created the platform for a whole other cultural context, which is the one that we have now. So, having started in 1982, by 1997, uh, my last telepresence piece would was conceived in 96, I could only f actually present it because it was so complex and expensive, I could, I could only pre present it in 99, but was actually conceived in 96. And 
And then by 97, I felt that this whole process was effectively in place. That is, not only uh, digital had acquired a cultural force and a cultural presence, but culture itself had become digital, which we see more and more of it today. But, um, but that was a profound change, where culture, digital begins to have a cultural impact from that to the point in which culture is itself fundamentally digital. It's, it's really quite profound. Uh, when I started to make telecommunications works in, in the 80s, I created these ephemeral nomadic networks using fax machines, live television broadcasts with you know, microwave links and, and uh, using video phones and, and these different types of uh, devices. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, you do have a, a broadband network in place. So these nomadic ephemeral networks are no longer uh, necessary. You can still make interventions as I did early on on the internet, especially because the early internet was a more open environment than, than our current internet. But uh, the fact is that by 97 I felt that this process was complete. And I started to feel that digital, the, the experimental nature of working with media and digital art was becoming around me was becoming some more, somewhat academicized and, and somewhat stale and somewhat repetitive and, and metaphysical claims were being made uh, about the internet that we would upload our consciousness and things of the kind and I felt that a radical turn uh, towards and with and through and from the body was um, absolutely uh, necessary. That is, a visceral turn away from this over-aestheticizing of the pixel. And, and, and I felt that life had to once again take center stage in, in art making. And this is when I created Time Capsule which is a work in which I became the first human to implant a microchip, a digital microchip, which I still have. Mm -hmm. And live on TV and on the internet in front of Sipeton uh, photographs from Europe in the 30s to confront the status of analog memory versus digital memory. And simultaneously, also in 97, not, not during the same exhibition, but still in 97, I created another piece called uh, A Positive. It's, a, a, it's an interactive piece. I was the first one to do it, but it's, it was not a performance. It was meant to be available to the, to the public in the gallery, that you come to the gallery, you sit down next to the robot, and you begin to give blood to the robot. And when the robot detects that you have reached the, the recommended amount of blood that you should donate, at, beyond which it's not really advisable, it, um, it ignites a spark, burns the oxygen inside, and then from the oxygen that is, the carbon dioxide that is produced by the spark in contact with the blood, releases more oxygen to support the little flame in the glass heart of the robot. While this is happening, the robot raises its arm and intravenously uh, donates dextrose to you, so a cycle is created to support that uh, small flame in the robot's glass heart that contains your blood. So 
These two pieces are emblematic of two things that take place. One, in my view, is that with Time Capsule, I, I clearly make the statement that one of the platforms of art in the 21st century is that it's no less visceral, it's no, no less connected to living tissue, because after all, it's living tissue that stabilizes the position of the microchip. And it is active and it is connected to the network, but it's under the skin. And it's not conceptual or abstract because your bones are in your skin and they're absolutely indispensable to your well-being. So what I'm talking about is that this is a kind of art in which there's something very material, very tangible, very real, physical, connected to your living tissue, but that remains firmly beyond your grasp, that still affects you. And, and that calls for a, an engagement of your awareness that is different from an abstract idea or some kind of pictorial representation, just a different modality of cultural engagement. So that's one thing. And the other is, is that this piece, uh, A positive, which is, my, is named after my blood type, um, this is a robot that takes in human tissue, blood, right? And not in a decorative way. The blood actually performs a function which defines the very nature of this robot. So the, the blood works, works in the sense of performing a labor, right? As a microchip does, or a gear does, or pulleys, or you know, any, any it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a component item of the robot. And in my view, that's emblematic of another aspect of life in the 21st century, and that is the opposite of the cyborg. Mm -hmm. the, the cyborg, uh, as we know, the cybernetic organism, is technology migrating to the living. My belief is that in the 21st century, we're going to see the opposite. We're going to see the living migrating into technology. So we're going to have large technological complex structures with one or two or three a network of living elements within it that perform a function that, uh, that electronics can no longer perform. So that robot is an indication, in my view, of things to come. The, the opposite vector of, of the cyborg. So that's the crux for me, that's the departing point, that's 97, and to name this departure that is still electronic, still online, it's still cybernetic, it's still robotic, telepresential, it still connects all, all, all of my previous interests, but represents a departure. I coined the term bioart. And then in 98, the next year, I, I went one step beyond that and wrote uh, my text transgenic art, in which I formalize more clearly what my specific contribution within what I named the larger field of bioart would be. Um, I felt that my contribution could be more effective uh, pursuing my ultimate vision of creation of new life in the context of art, in a way that is ontologically ambiguous, that is, art, that is, life, that is literally alive, no metaphor, just alive, but that carries non-biological meaning, extra-biological meaning, which is exactly what inflects it uh, poetically. In other words, we're not talking about just using some organism that is available somewhere, 
but creating a new life deliberately, consciously, uh, creating new living organisms specifically for that artwork and no other context. And uh, that was 98 when I wrote that. And, and then in 1999, I finally uh, managed to present publicly my first transgenic work. So you see, there is a continuum of my preoccupations uh, throughout the year that progressively lead to Genesis. And Genesis then um, is, is, um, is, is an artwork in which this process of encoding the biblical statement into DNA and synthesizing the DNA coupled with a GFP sequence to uh, enable participants anywhere in the world to change the word of God in the body of the bacteria through the internet um, speaks to the very condition of life uh, which then was on the horizon and that horizon is, is now for us. You should ex explain maybe just for people who haven't seen it that people could turn lights on and off over the internet and that would affect the growth um, of the bacteria um, in the project. Is that that's what you mean by people influencing the, 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 the life? That is correct. The bacteria were on top of a shortwave UV light box. Mm -hmm. In fact there was a switch there was a switch uh, connecting white light that promotes growth because it creates the, the, the right temperature. And the UV, the shortwave UV, which uh, provokes mutation. So you could turn on, the white light was on by default, you could turn on the UV light. And, and you could do so repeatedly. And uh, actually, literally, physically, cause the genetic basis to move around. And, and alter the DNA sequence, mm -hmm. and, uh, and as a result, again, change the word of God and the body of the bacteria through the internet with just one mouse click. So, I mean, what's interesting in hearing you describe this is you just you know, describe this is your artistic process, these are things you know, following the telepresence, sort of ran its course, new ideas occurred to you, but it, it's curious how much it parallels things that were happening in science at the same time. And then, I mean, you were very early to start using computers in a much more interactive, participatory way in your work. And this also happened in science. I mean, scientists have always had access to computers, but they began to run virtual experiments. They began to be able to use computers much more, not just for recording data and collecting and so on, but actually participating, creating scenarios and so on, which is some of what you were doing in telepresence. And, and also, there was a sense in science that the age of physics was coming to an end. We were entering an age of where biology would be the dominant science. And, and you know, you're right, cybernetics was an idea from the 1950s and 60s, and now there is this new idea of extending whatever is human. You know, it, it's a step in evolution that we're integrating ourselves with other devices, other abilities. So that's, um, whether consciously or not, um, it's interesting to me that you seem to be on a track that at least is in, in running in parallel. And it's not as if you're learning from science, because in many of these ideas, you were actually ahead of the, the scientists and using computers in the creative way that you did. You were doing that before many, most scientists thought about using them in their own work in a creative way. So I wonder now, I mean, going forward from Genesis, um, you know, where, where do you, you think about this going next in terms, because it is, in fact, about evolution again. It seems to me you're talking about um, adding steps, linking us to other types of organisms, 
being. So where do you, you know, where is your process as an artist taking you? Because um, I think it might be interesting for where we might, science might be going at the same time. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I think that when new media processes, systems, and materials become available, uh, they become attractive to uh, many, many, many disciplines. Uh, that was true of video, that was true of uh, computer, so artists, scientists, uh, lawyers, and doctors, and I think uh, pedagogues, I think everybody becomes interested in, in these new uh, media materials. In, in the case of art, in my case specifically, uh, Genesis is from 1999, and basically it's a piece that has been shown continuously every year since then. It has never stopped. It's been shown, I, I, it's on my website, but I think more than 30, maybe even 40 different venues in, in these. I, I don't remember exact, exactly the number, but it's a piece that uh, for, uh, for these 11 years that uh, it has existed, it has been shown continuously. And uh, that is interesting because that is not something that happens very often. Sometimes a work gets shown and then you know, goes into storage and gets shown again many years later. That's the norm. But for a work of art to continuously, uninterruptedly, for more than 10 years, always be on display somewhere in the world, uh, I cannot name any other work of mine that has been shown uh, that for that long and that often. So that may be emblematic of, um, of the interest and the curiosity uh, that uh, your question represents. So what's, mm -hmm. what's the future, what's ahead? And um, my, in my most recent work, which is called Natural History of the Enigma, which, uh, in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about two recent works, Natural History of the Enigma, which I presented at the Wiseman Art Museum in Minneapolis in 2009, and another one called Cypher, which was first shown at an exhibition that I had at the venue in France called Rouhart, uh, near Poitiers. Mm -hmm. Let me begin by natural history of the enigma, and, and you will see in what ways I think that these two works are emblematic of uh, what's on the horizon. Natural History of the Enigma, uh, I worked on this piece for six years and um, I worked with a good friend of mine called Neil Olczewski, who is a, a plant biologist at the University of Minnesota. And we worked on this project for uh, five years initially. Now I can say this because the project is complete and, and has been shown. But for the five years that we worked on it, uh, we had uh, basically uh, nothing to show for. We were making one mistake after another and uh, not really getting there. And after five years, we finally achieved the, the exactly the, uh, the desired outcome. And the desired outcome, and then we had one more year to schedule the show, that's why I say six years, in the museum, 2009 we finally uh, exhibited the work. And the desired outcome is this. I wanted to create a new kind of flower that in its red veins would express, only in the red veins, it would express a gene of mine, a specific one, uh, 
that would come from my red veins, that is my blood, and producing this image of a gene that flows from my red veins to the red veins of the flower. And that gets integrated into the chromosome of the flower and that produces my protein in its red veins as if it was one, one of its own. And uh, that, that uh, DNA fragment is very specific because it's part of the complex that in us, in us identifies and rejects what is not human. So uh, poetically and philosophically what I'm really saying is that what in us rejects the other is exactly what I integrate into the other to produce a new kind of self, a new entity that as such never existed on the planet. And I'm very interested in, in this cultural condition that is the fact that suddenly in the context of art a new life form, a new being exists materially, physically and it is almost as if we were in a crowded train called planet Earth and then all of a sudden another person enters. You have to accommodate, you have to make a little space for that other person because that person is there and there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's just the way it is. You know, that train doesn't belong to you because you're there, it doesn't belong to your neighbor, it belongs to everybody. So that other person has the same right to be in that train like you have. And you have to switch a little bit, move to the left a little bit, move to the right a little bit, and make space for that person, you know, in that train. And, and the fact that an artist can imagine a new life form, as we have always done, and instead of describing it or representing it or alluding to it, actually bring that life form into the world, uh, to me that has a foundational, ontological quality that is the very characteristic of the bioart that I make. Well, a, a piece like this uh, addresses all kinds of issues and raises all kinds of questions, but one of them that I find uh, very interesting, and I think we're going to hear more and more about it in the, in the 21st century and beyond, has to do with our changing uh, patterns of understanding in regards to uh, plants. We, I, I said earlier that for modernity the non-human animal was anathema and you begin to see a shift in that in the 60s when, when we begin to move away from high modernism into what uh, may be called postmodernism. Um, because postmodernism is understood by many to be a period in which we repeat previous forms and we, through irony and pastiche, which is a, a, a view that I completely disagree with. I see that art continuously goes through different moments and movements that uh, engage with uh, social issues, the invention of new art forms. I don't see that disappearing uh, in the 60s or 70s or 80s at all. So I, I disagree with that assessment. But postmodernism, in the sense that uh, we are no longer operating with the same pre-war logic of high modernism. Uh, we're talking about Paris '68. We're talking about, you know, McCarthy, the, the beatniks, and and revolutions, and 
and uh, a certain period of repression in many parts of the world in the 70s, Vietnam, and all kinds of military dictatorships and artists responding to those contexts, and then the digital revolution, which is uh, the, process, the cultural process that I participated in in the early 80s. So I see, I see a lot of exciting non-irony, non-pastiche, non-repetitive moments and forms happening in the period that uh, others see differently. So what I'm saying is that the animal in this context returns. And returns uh, because, for example, some artists are interested in ecology and they find in the living animal or insects or turtles or one artist, for example, um, takes uh, a fish that uh, stays immobile when it's frozen in a lake and he cuts a, a, a glass block and um, his name is Alan Sophist and he places this frozen fish inside a clear ice cube mm -hmm. in the gallery and then visitors become very uh, uncomfortable because they think he's torturing the fish and only later when they understand that this fish is exactly uh, going through the natural process that it does, mm -hmm. except not in the lake, but now in front of mm -hmm. your eyes, it's a revelation. So, so artists are interested in natural processes and, and other types of situations as, as elements in a visual and experiential vocabulary. So the animal returns in, 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 in many different ways. In the case of Bayard, we're talking about the invention of new ones. It's, it's yet a different type of situation. But with a piece like Natural History of the Enigma, when um, I become uh, completely intertwined with this flower, it's a petunia, so I call her Edunia, because this one is actually not like the other petunias, because as you know, flowers do not produce human proteins in the natural environment. This one does. So uh, it's a merger of Eduardo and Petunia, therefore Edunia. So the Edunia is unique, and what she points to is the fact that we have a lot more in common with members of the horticultural community than we are prepared to acknowledge and perhaps accept. If Darwin helped us visualize the link with the non-human animal, especially primates. For most human beings, we remain firmly separated from carrots and lettuce and tomato. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that things aren't quite that way. Uh, we have seen through countless uh, bodies of research recently that there are homologies between us, in genetic homologies between us and plants. And a piece like mine, for example, even though I have used some of the most cutting-edge tools available to humankind in the present, um, I am actually going back to a very long time in history before we all separated in our own clear uh, directions. Uh, a time when humans and plants uh, had common ancestors. If this plant can accept a fragment of DNA 
coming from me as one of its own and produce my protein in its red veins. I think that speaks volumes about how close we are to the horticultural world. So in going forward and backwards at the same time and pointing out that uh, the usually understood gap between us and plants uh, is at least partially false. I think I'm pointing out that in this century of ours, we are going to be looking at plants in a very different way. Uh, we now know, and this is knowledge that we've gained only in the last few years, we now know that uh, plants are not indifferent to being eaten. They're, they're not there uh, to be our meals. They're not there indifferent to becoming meals. When they are uh, attacked, that is when they're eaten in the natural environment, they signal to their neighbor plants uh, to trigger defense mechanisms. Uh, they are not indifferent to, uh, to predators, to uh, animals that uh, will come in and eat them. So uh, this complicates uh, in very interesting ways, in philosophical ways, uh, the assumptions that we have made about the gaps that exist that exist between um, us and plants. And I think plants will come to the foreground in an entirely uh, new light uh, in the 20th, 21st century um, in ways that we have not anticipated yet. So that's one thing. The other thing is that this other artwork called the Cypher. Cypher is uh, an artwork that initially you could confuse with a book because it, it has a slipcase and um, on the spine of the slipcase, you, you see its title. You, you could put it on the shelf and think it's a, of it as a book. But the moment you remove it from the shelf, you realize that what you have in your hand initially is a steel object, a 3D steel object, and, and therefore a lot closer to a sculpture. When you open it, you realize that it's certainly not a traditional sculpture, neither it is a traditional book. When you, it opens like a book in two halves like that. But all the compartments are, uh, make it a small, portable, nomadic laboratory. Um, I wrote a poem with high incidence of the genetic basis and uh, codified the remaining uh, letters in the poem and synthesized the DNA that is integral to this uh, mini-lab, which is Cypher, this transgenic kit, do-it-yourself mm -hmm. kit. And I am basically, uh, with the protocol and the booklet and the petri dishes and the agar and everything that is in there, I am actually asking the viewer to give life to the work literally, because the DNA fragment and the plasmid that is part of the, part of the kit by itself doesn't do anything. It just sits there in the, in the glass vial, doesn't do anything. But the moment that you go through the protocol and you activate all the elements and you uh, follow everything, all of a sudden the text of the poem becomes alive. It's, it's coupled with a sequence that endows the, the bacterium with red fluorescence. So you can actually see the result of your work. You can see, you know the before because you saw the bacteria didn't glow, and now you see the bacteria do glow, and you see that you have succeeded in giving life, life and light, mm -hmm. to the poem, both. And, and putting the power of giving life in your hands in this smaller, portable way 
I think it is also going to be emblematic of what's going to happen in the 20, 21st century and beyond.